How can money be identified? If I remember my economics courses correctly, as our economy expands, commercial banks and the Fed have the ability to create new money. Perhaps it'll be like a birth certificate. Hi, Fed. Look at what we created. We want to call this one George. That's his question. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jeff, for the input of of humor there as well. Um, You have it right. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. Together, we are bald. And it's exciting for us whether or not it is for you. Yes, it's an exciting episode because we get to say things in public that could shame us, ruin our careers or in other ways cause us to have uh, the proverbial egg on our face. Although literal egg in some cases is preferable to proverbial Mm. egg. Yes. When is a literal egg preferable to a proverbial egg? Sounds like a riddle. It is. Um, This is the personal wealth coach. This is Jake McClure and Jeff McClure. Both of us are baldy. One is younger and one is older baldy. Uh, Older Baldy is the father of Younger Baldy, and I am the Younger Baldy. We have been working together now for 31 years. Thinking about that for a second. Do you realize it's been 31 years that we've been working together? I do, and I felt it strongly this morning. In, in, In your joints? Working with me can lead to old age. The longer you work with me, the older you get. That is that's one of those tough situations. I've just had to come to to grips with it. Uh, This is the personal wealth coach, and we've got to give you some other disclosures besides the fact that we're bald. We're also bearded. Yes, I realize that these are controversial statements and uh, could cause people to change the channel immediately, but we're going to continue as if you didn't change the channel. Uh, We are the personal wealth coach, and that's not just the name of a radio program and podcast. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm that gives fiduciary investment advice. Um, That does not mean that this is fiduciary investment advice. We can't give it fiduciary investment advice on the air. There's no privacy there. We don't know everybody we're talking about. So this is educational information that we're giving on the air. And just because the firm's registered with the SEC does not mean that the Securities and Exchange Commission somehow holds us uh, in, in, in their heart in a deeply loving and spiritual manner. No, they don't do that. They are a governmental organization and their job is to regulate people. We mention them because they're our regulator and they want us to mention that they regulate us. So that's there. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. However, we do warranty and guarantee that anything we don't say is incomplete. I would really like to see a statistic from the Labor Department on pregnancy in the Labor Department. That's just side note, but truly nerdly sense of humor. Yes. You are weird. Yes, I, 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 I will admit to that. And that is the one of the last disclosures. 
we, the last disclosure is we do not pay for this radio program. We don't get paid either. We've been doing this as a volunteer service since 19, I've been doing it since 98. You did a few episodes at the end of 96. It's been a long time. We've been doing these free programs that I hope people are getting something out of. They're probably getting at least as much as they're paying for it. That's that's what I say. However, we do advertise on the, the station, KTEM. Uh, our advertisement is for the radio program. This is a deal we worked out with the studio. They also spend airtime advertising the radio program. The rates that we pay for our advertising is actually discounted at this point. So there is no quid pro quo, Senator. There, I've said it. Uh, John, I'm going to do this one out of order. All right, so uh, John said, what's the his historical percentages between goods and services? He sent us a uh, article from the Wall Street Journal that says services have lately accounted for about 60% of gross domestic product, according to Comer the Commerce Department, compared to about 32% for goods production, with the remainder going towards structures such as building and bridges. And he says, what's the normal... What's the normal balance? Well, first off, there ain't one. There's no normal in the world, especially right now. But when you hear us talking about uh, personal consumption expenditures, a huge chunk of our economy is consumption. And the balance on what we're consuming versus a service versus a good. You consume a service, you would think, well, that's right away, right? You're going to a restaurant and that's gone. You have consumed both what you ate and the service that provided it. But you also have services that are like electrical services and plumbing services or uh, investment advice. Um, those services tend to be longer lasting. You, you are buying the services of a plumber to prevent... Um, problems in your plumbing for the coming decade or to create new plumbing for the coming decade. So what we call goods and services is a little bit vague, just to put it that way, because if you get plumbing services, you're also getting goods. Electrical services, you're also getting goods. Restaurant services also give you goods. So it's really kind of a loose category, which is why I say there isn't really a good balance. Coming out of the pandemic, going into the pandemic, we switched over to goods in whole hog We because there were massive uh, lack of services. People got laid off in the services industry, kind of whole hog. Unless you were a plumber or an electrician, if you were a, a wait staff uh, employee at a restaurant or a cook at a restaurant, they just got laid off. Uh, hospitality was hit really hard, and there's a lot of service there. So goods took off coming out of the shutdown. when uh, That's where we've seen a lot of the initial inflation, where the goods were just hard to get because everybody wanted them. Uh, we talked about supply chain issues where uh, the margarine companies and the butter companies had to figure out how to stop packaging butter in little single-use items for restaurants and switch it over to larger containers for people at home. 
They had to switch all kinds of stuff in that process. So goods inflation took off and the amount that we spent on it was really, really high. Uh, generally speaking, they're pretty well balanced, close to 50-50. Well, now what we're seeing is, according to this article, um, 32% being spent on goods where uh, is 60% is services. So 60% being services has a lot to do with we're going out to eat. We're having about 600,000 more weddings every year than we did over the last two years. So this 2021, we had an uptick. 2022 was an explosion in weddings, which if you think about that for the, the analogy of an explosion at a wedding, you could start to have a little bit of humor there. We had a lot of weddings. A lot of money was spent on weddings. Each of those weddings cost, on average, $28,000. There's difficulty in finding, finding wedding planners. and you, So this is when we're seeing now services are ballooning and goods. People are cutting. We've got all the good. We bought all of our washers and our dryers. People went out and bought houses. One out of five households in the United States changed their residence in the last two and a half years. That's not normal either. And that kind of falls into the structure and goods side of things. A lot of, about half of those folks, according to the different surveys from Realtor.com and from Zillow, they have massive buyer's remorse. They were impulse purchases done at a time when they, people were, had cabin fever and they just wanted to get out of one house and into another. Now they're not happy. It's more expensive than they expected, the movement. So what's normal is more about 50-50. And we're at 60-30 right now. That's, that's a big offset. Um, hopefully, I answered that question fairly well. Um, the other one I want to hit real quick, and then I will hand off the next one to you. Um, uh, John had sent a question last, last week. Um, I was talking about... Uh, real estate portfolios, actually owning rental properties and where you get a, a pretty good efficiency at 30 to $50 million in your portfolio for rental real estate. Uh, and his question is, you just mentioned about rental real estate or real estate that you have 30 to 50 million, you have efficiency. What does that mean? If you own one house and you're renting it out, you generally will work with a property management firm. And the property management firms traditionally have charged about 10%. Well, if you're in this new wave of folks that are doing the nightly rentals, Airbnb, VRBO, Verbo, um, you're generally paying 35% for management. And if it's worth it and you've got a good profit margin going, that's, that's a decent income. If you have 30 different houses or 80 different houses, you're not paying 35% for a management fee. You are employing people to let those houses for you. And your overhead in your management of that profit, property drops down to about 8%, 8% of the gross coming in. So the difference between 35% when you don't have a huge amount of property and you have to pay someone to manage it for you versus hiring someone to manage it for you because you have enough revenue coming in to get more efficient in that management. 
Rather than paying the extra, you're just saying, this is how we manage the property here. I have three employees that are constantly online, uh, renting out my houses, keeping them listed, letting, letting, you know, the cleaners know when they can go in, all that good stuff. So that's what I meant about efficiency. And then the last question, I can hand that off to you. This is from Jeff. He says, first, thanks for your willingness to talk to the masses and help educate us. I'm not sure how well we're doing on that. We're doing our best. Uh, He says, today you discussed, meaning last week, uh, how the Federal Reserve is in the process of being able to identify and label each dollar. Once they've completed the process with the current funds, how can money be identified? If I remember my economics courses correctly, as our economy expands, commercial banks and the Fed have the ability to create new money. Perhaps it'll be like a birth certificate. Hi, Fed. Look at what we created. We want to call this one George. That's his question. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jeff, for the input of of humor there as well. Um, You have it right. Uh, And that's it, is that the Federal Reserve is going to need to give the authority to banks when money is created to identify the money. They already do that on the paper money. People say, well, no, the Treasury Department does that. Well, they do under the authority from the Federal Reserve. It seems backwards. The Treasury doesn't just print money on its own. The Federal Reserve says, hey, replace this money that's been destroyed, or we need more cash than we have on hand. Enough of it is is not in circulation that we're running out of coins or we're running out of dollars. So they go to the Treasury Department and they say, print more. And then the Treasury Department has, you know, a, a system to give identifiers to all of the dollars. Well, let's think about this. If somebody shows up with their piggy bank, they show up with um, $3,000 worth of quarters. And they go to the bank and they say, we want to put $3,000 in my bank account. Well, now it's not coins anymore. When you look online, you don't see a stack of quarters. You see numbers representing a digital balance at whatever bank you have. That's the way it works right now. Those banks automatically assign identifier numbers to each unit of currency in your bank account down to the penny. The Federal Reserve will just have to standardize that across the board because uh, Wells Fargo might call it George and um, Citigroup might call it Frank. And the difference is when they're showing up and being transferred from Wells Fargo to Citigroup, uh, they've got to take off the name tag and put a new name tag on and make sure that the name tag was correct at the last place. So this is where a digital currency will say, no, they're all George. (laughs) They're George at every bank. Go ahead. Please go ahead. That's good. That's wonderful. Take the horse I just there's, rode off and bring it back to the barn. There's a irony in the, the, the issue of digital currency, meaning identifying each unit of currency, which would be a dollar. Or um, a penny. Well, actually, let's start with the dollar. Okay. Because the dollar, the, the penny is actually a fraction of a dollar. Uh, that's the way it's... At a bank, they, they have an identifier for every penny as every nickel. Yeah, every, I, I, I do yeah. I, I do recognize that, but I'm saying the way it started, the way the way we have run it historically, after we stopped using precious metals as currency, which was a very dangerous thing and caused a lot of economic unhappiness in the world. Um if you have a dollar bill, or for that matter, a twenty dollar bill, 
and you pull it out and look at it, it has a unique serial number on it. It's already got a name, and it's a little complicated, complicated to call it by its entire name. It's also it's already issued by a bank. The Federal Reserve Bank of something or another issued that piece of currency, that dollar or that $20 or that $5 uh, unit that you have. It has a unique serial number on it. It has a unique family, that bank. Uh, we already have that in effect. Now, nobody very well, actually, I didn't say, shouldn't say nobody. For many years, nobody tracked that. Uh, now I understand that banks do in fact scan currency as it comes in. So they know all the serial numbers and they go into a database someplace, um, which probably prevents some crime somewhere, but I'm sure the criminals turn around and did something about that rather quickly. Um, so we're actually trying to get back to where we were. We're actually trying to get back to the point where each piece of each dollar. And as Jake said, down to the beach penny gets identified. And of course, one of the problems we run into when we get down to a penny being identified is that when transactions take place in, in securities and actually across banking systems and so on, they're doing it down to millionths of a cent now. So at what point do you identify which cent that millionth belonged to? And that's one of the things that's having to be discussed and calculated and figured out on uh there was a movie about was it called the office well there, where, there where the guy was rounding to the to rounding called pennies office space but it's also office space superman 2 richard pryor also did the same thing where you get the fractional pennies and you just set up a bank account to receive all the fractional pennies and then you can where do fractional pennies come from and this is a good question at the bank level, when they're charging their fee on your, um, on your balance, if it's a percentage fee, which is kind of rare these days at a bank, but it still happens, they can charge a percentage of your one penny, which comes out to, a, obviously, you've got decimal points now. You've got a fractional value on a penny. Well, what happens? Well, you round up. If, if you're above 0.5 pennies, you round down if you're not. Unfortunately, what that does is it creates pennies and it destroys pennies. Um, and that's one of those oddities about life in general. Um, as soon as you get into the digital world, you get fractional pennies. So one of the first things that'll be needed to be addressed is when do you round up and when do you round down? at banks and it needs to be universal because it's not universal right now each bank does that a little bit differently yeah so it's kind of like the big blu-ray dvd competition we're going to come up with a national standard and just when we get the national standard we'll have a new technology to replace it wait no this is the digital thing that's replacing dvds never mind forget what i said this is the technology we'll use forever ha and i have a lot more to talk about, but I'm sure you've got some too. And seeing as I took off with a subject I said very clearly I was going to give to you, I think I should give you the next well, one. It was, it was quite pleasant listening to you. It's always, it's always interesting to hear your melodious voice. Uh, I want to go back to the macro theme, um, the issues that are, the, the big issues that are driving things right now, and repeat something. You may have heard my soliloquy at the beginning of this, but one of the more important things to understand, if you're interested in understanding what's going on in the economy, is the fact that we may or may not have a recession next year or into 2024. And all of the traditional indicators are pointing to a recession, but that doesn't mean we'll have a recession. And here's why. Traditionally, 
Recessions occur when the manufacturing sector, the goods side of our economy, has gotten ahead of itself. And there's a lag, because there's always a lag, between the time that they perceive people wanting to buy things and the time they get things. So they do a lot of ordering and a lot of stuff comes in. Stuff is substitute for goods. Uh, so stuff comes in and gets put in inventory. And about that time, people run out of money to spend because they spent through their wages. They spent, their, not wages, but they spent through their savings that they saved up during bad times last time. And interest rates have gone up a little bit, so they don't want to borrow any more money. They run out of credit. They run out of cash. Or they get to the point where they're uncomfortable and they stop buying things. Well, then the retailers suddenly have a lot of stuff in inventory that isn't going to retain its value. And they start having sales and the prices start to come down. And they start to lay people off because they're less profitable and cars stop being made because they're not all being bought and we get a recession. Through that cycle, historically, services have remained relatively stable. Just because you're not buying a new car doesn't mean you don't go out to eat. Just because you're not buying a new car doesn't mean you're not going to get your plumbing fixed or your hot water heater replaced or your roof fixed if it's leaking or all the other services things that people do. You're still going to go to the doctor. You're still going to do a lot of things. And that may come down a little bit, but most of what we call services, we will stick with. And that's 60% of our economy. So our recessions tend to be relatively mild compared with some other places and other times. And they're driven by the manufacturing and goods side of the economy. This one is in reverse. The manufacturing and goods side of our economy have already started to slow. The, in the indices, the purchasing managers indexes, which tell us what's coming down the road, are below 50, which indicates that the manufacturing side, the goods side of our economy, is actually shrinking a little bit right now. But we still have inflation. We still have high demand for workers, which means prices on to, to hire workers going up. So the expenses in there and the prices are going up. We still have inflation. Why? Because in this particular instance, what happened during the pandemic is we had a collapse in services demand. Why? Because everybody was staying home. And if everybody's staying home, they don't go to the movies. They don't go out to eat. They don't do a lot of things we call services. They don't pay for a lot of those things. They don't have somebody come to the house because nobody's coming to the house because everybody's staying home and being quiet. And then the end result is we had, during the last recession, a collapse in the services side of our economy while the manufacturing side went hyper because everybody was staying home, so they ordered a bunch of stuff, which jammed up the supply chains, which caused another issue altogether. As we come out of this, we're still in whiplash mode. People didn't spend a lot of money on services during the downturn in the economy that we call the pandemic. The lower class, lower working class, the lower third of our economy, of our economic uh, economy where people earn less money than the median, that group of people has pretty much spent their reserves. They've pretty much spent everything and they're no longer overspending. It's the middle class that's driving the train right now. We're the ones who spend a lot of money on services and we're still spending money on services. We're still not so much buying things as buying services. That is the challenge that the Federal Reserve faces, which makes it very different this time. High interest rates tend to bring down the sale and manufacture and import of goods. They have far less effect on the sale and provision of services. 
So what we have is the Federal Reserve pushing at one side of the economy when the uh, inflation is being generated by the other side of the economy. This is really a different situation. It really, it, it's hard for me to imagine, given the excess cash in the savings accounts of people in the middle class in the United States, and it's counted in trillions, when I say excess, excess above their normal level, that in 2023, the middle class is going to stop spending a lot of money on services. And the only way we're going to see a recession is if the middle class stops spending money on services. I think inflation will tone itself down. Uh, there's some very good reasons for that. And, and I'm getting a little long here, but I've got a very a couple of more points. Most of the burst of inflation we saw at the beginning of this year, which is when it really cranked up early in, in 2022, was when Russia invaded Ukraine and the price of oil went to $120 a barrel. That's still filtering its way through the economy, that price spike. And as a result, when we hit one year after the invasion of Ukraine and shortly thereafter, when the price of oil spiked and we see oil, let's just say it's still running along at uh, 70 to $80 a barrel and it was $120 a barrel, we will have seen in one year a dramatic drop in the price of oil. Looking back one year, which is where inflation numbers look, we will probably see inflation come down to at most 3% at that point or sometime in 2023 and continue to work its way lower. Yeah, I agree with uh, that. And that's pretty much what Goldman Sachs was just saying. Yeah. And, and so what's going to happen, I think, is the Federal Reserve will stop raising rates. And at some point, probably late next year, they'll probably start lowering rates. And we've got to break for a hard break. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give customized investment, fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management for people of high net worth. That takes some customization. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air about that, the local number is? 254-947-1111. Or, or toll free, should you still be constrained to landlines, is 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com, where we have a place to sign up for our newsletters. You can read our newsletters going back. You can find our podcasts and our programs going back a long time. You can go to anywhere podcasts are provided. You can contact us through the contact form or email us directly. Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening, for, and we'll be back next hour.